Our reading this evening is from the Gospel of John in chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Well, we're beginning this series now and... um, We are pursuing John's Gospel in the evening. You'll see all the program as it unfolds uh, here. And uh, we're beginning in John's Gospel. And if you keep your Bible open, I'm sure that will be helpful for for all of us. Uh, The title is John Meets Jesus. Um, I perhaps would prefer, um, perhaps to put it another way, John introduces Jesus. He's the forerunner preparing the way. I I don't know if you noticed in that reading, there's a whole series of of negative responses from John, saying, I'm not called to do this. No, not that. I'm not him. And then he gives his uh, true calling. Communication with people is not always easy. We know that. If we don't, we might be uh, self-deluded. For example, a few years ago, an American uh, cola firm, Pepsi, launched a major uh, sales enterprise. It was a campaign that was launched in China. It's emerging as people now could afford to buy uh, Pepsi. And so there were massive posters in the cities and various places and on the television. And the advertisement ran like this. Quote, Pepsi makes you 
come alive. Oh, that's a good uh, advertising slogan. We're talking about communication to the surprise of uh, the sales managers and the directors that sales plummeted. Having invested so much money, they were disappointed. So, an investigation was launched immediately to trace why this good product should have such bad sales. And the problem lay not in the Pepsi itself, but in the translation. Literally translated from English to Chinese was, I quote, Pepsi makes your ancestors come back from the dead. It's true. Presumably, the Chinese weren't too keen to meet some of their ancestors, the dead ones. Uh, communication, well thought out, come alive with Pepsi, you would say. Come alive with Jesus Christ. And yet, sometimes that can backfire on us. What you find here is John trying to communicate. And he's having a tough time. You will see um, in verse 19, there is this formal delegation from Jerusalem. Priests and Levites, big movers and shakers in the church world, are coming to ask, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? What, what sermon are you preaching? Why this strange uh, baptism? Who are you? Who do you think you are? And John seems to sum this up ultimately, and this is where we'll arrive at, uh, as in verse 34, where he says, I have seen and testify that this, this Jesus, is the Son of God, is the Messiah. A marvelous summing up verse, which is where we'll arrive. But the process of that, I want us to look at now. To introduce, John's task then is almost one all-consuming purpose. And it is to introduce Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And so his reference to Isaiah is a very powerful one. His reference to the Lamb of God connects immediately. It's where they're at. It's what they would know. They know about the Passover. They know about the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So what I'd like to do is just say two things um, for the sermon tonight. The first heading is this, characteristics of John as he prepares the way, and how we can be people who prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. And secondly, the confidence uh, in us of being people who introduce Jesus. So there it is. That's where we're going. First of all then, characteristics of John the Baptist. You'll notice, I want to give you five uh, statements which are followed by a negative, and you'll see that this makes sense uh, as we open up John's Gospel, and we'll make some reference in uh, uh, verses 6 to uh, 8 as well. So first of all, he was human, but not ordinary. You see, in verse 6, there was a man who was sent from God. His name was John. It's rather simple. A man sent from God, whose name was Jeff, or you. His name was John. 
And I would suggest to you that at school or in your family, if there are unbelievers, we think of um, the, the, the difficulty. Adam made no reference to the fact that how do you cope if your parents uh, split up? And you try to keep in touch with both. It's not easy, is it? What is, what is our calling in a world that's often ill at ease with itself? There was someone sent from God whose name was? That's you. That's you. Human, but not ordinary. No Christian, by definition, can be ordinary. Put your name there. If you do nothing else in the sermon, do that. You are sent from God. That's your name. And wherever you live, move and have your being, at school, at work, at home, or whatever, that's it. Man sent from God, whose name was, and you're preparing the way. Put it like this. You could lay a bridge of friendship that someone can walk over and have an encounter with Jesus Christ. You are sent from God. What a powerful and a wonderful thing to do. I wonder if that would be a characteristic of us. Possibly, our discipleship is blighted most by mediocrity. You say, what is mediocrity? Actually, the dictionary defines it like this. Second rate. Second rate. Possibly, our discipleship is blighted more by mediocrity, by second rate, not by... Grace, gross unbelief, but simply we can't be bothered. Perhaps than any other weakness, and we all have them. I am sent from God, and my name is, and I'm preparing the way for somebody to have an encounter with Jesus. Secondly, John, he was a lamp, not the light. Look at the next verses as we have a, an idea of, of who this John is. He came as a witness to, this is verse 7, he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. Do you see that? He was not. He came only as a witness, pointing to the light, the true light that lights, that gives light to every man who comes into the world. So if the first is so simple, I am sent from God and my name is, then the second is so obvious. It's so obvious. Our purpose is to point the way. To point to the light. John does this in a very strong way, doesn't he? He says, behold, look the Lamb of God. Look. Look at Him. People who turn uh, their attention to themselves or draw attention to themselves can be a, a positive hindrance. So, it's very simple and it's very obvious. We are to turn people from darkness to light. We are to point to Him. He is, he is everything. One of the things that we did this year on, um, on holiday, uh, as we were in um, Sicily, we were just uh, about a mile and a half outside of the main uh, town, Piazza, and uh, most evenings we would go, go down to the village square, 
and it, there was no lighting at all so we had to use torches and uh, I, I brought this torch here this is what we did we, we this one fits on your head like this and and you just put that like that and when a car was coming we go like this now it's only a small light but I'll tell you in the pitch darkness so the f person there were six of us in this chalet the person at the front and the person at the back, just in case uh, Sicilian driving does leave a lot to be desired, believe me. So um, we would say, as a, if a car came, say, car, 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 six of us. So everybody would know. But we all did it, taking our cue from one single light. That's all we needed. One light in the darkness. Now oh, it's so obvious. Think about this analogy and stay with it as its personal application. I even want to be even more pressing. Most of us have a variety of lamps and lights in our house. You can almost picture them now. Maybe you've got a desk lamp as I have. Maybe you've got a sensor light as we have. Or you've got chandeliers or other things. Or a table lamp. Maybe they are copper, silver. Maybe they're crystal. Whatever they are, whatever they're made up of is of little consequence as to their purpose in the home, to shed light. And it's obvious, isn't it, that the important thing is the light, not the lamp. And you see how John disassociates. I am not the light. I point to the light. He's the one. I point to him. And that is our task. That is our great task. And John does that. Even a small light is very powerful in a dark place. Little wonder that Jesus, launching his kingdom, would say to his disciples, You are the light of the world. It's a dark world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. What's that about? Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Thirdly, John was a voice, not the word. And we're coming a bit closer now. Look at verse 22 and uh, 23. Finally, he said to the, this delegation that's come, who are you? Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. You, you know, they're bureaucrats from Jerusalem. They have to fill in the forms. Tell us so that we can um, put it in a file. John replied to their astonishment in the words of Isaiah the prophet. I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. He was a voice, not the word. Fifthly, fourthly, he was unique, but not indispensable. He was unique, but not indispensable. Look at verse 29. The next day, so this is the following day now, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said yesterday, a man who comes after me has 
surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. John is saying, I'm preparing the way and there's going to come a time when I'll be off the scene. But he will always be there. Always. Uh, as I said in the notices, I'm going to, we're going to see my father early tomorrow. One of the things he taught us was this. The cemetery is full of people who thought they were indispensable. We are not. None of us. It may be a very humbling thing to face, but it is true. And it is certainly true of John. But there is one who, who is clearly indispensable. And each of us, if you like, are unique in this sense that whilst we are not indispensable, our task and our role and our journey, briefly though it is in this world, is distinctive and special and unique. If, put it, let me put it like this. The Lord Jesus knows our essential DNA. He knows that. What John chose to do here was to use the metaphor of a wilderness. A place that is desolate, arid, dry and barren. Now, may I ask you, what metaphor would he be inclined to choose if he had to describe your heart? Is that what it's like? Or is it fertile ground? Is it just a prevailing attitude of mediocrity? Anything goes? Or am I unique? Uniquely a person who belongs to the Lord Jesus. And fifthly, the characteristic of John, which in many ways ought to be of all his followers, is this, that he was a witness, but he was not a person to be worshipped. Ours is the age of the personality cult. We worship people. We love to do that. We put people on a, on a pedestal and then we knock them down. We love to do that. Look at what, what people have done with Wayne Rooney and, and, and the like. Elevate them. Then criticize them. Knock them off. That's something about our nature which is, which is perverse. But here is someone who is worthy to be worshipped. He is a witness but not a person to be worshipped, the Lord Jesus. So in verse uh, 29, he sees Jesus coming and he says, look. This, this, is a, this is an interesting word. It says, now take a good long look. Look again. It's, it's from that event of raising the serpent in the wilderness. Look and keep looking. Look and live. Look again and keep looking. With all the distractions that are around us. And like John, we must leave people in no doubt whatsoever that Jesus is the Christ, that he has truly arrived, and you will never turn the clock back. And we are to trust him, obey and follow him. And all this evidence is summed up in that lovely verse, verse 34, I have seen. I wonder if you could say that. It's a very humbling thing to do so. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. Now, of course, you haven't seen him with the eyes that John saw. 
Certainly with the eye of faith and trust, you've seen and you believe and you live. Okay, that's the characteristic of John. Very quickly, as we try to um, apply this even more, that confidence in us, what are we left with? Well, we, we like John, are, if I, if I may say, um, ordinary people. We are, for the most part. Some more distinctive than others, some less. That's fair enough. We are ordinary people. But... And this is the point that John is trying to emphasize. We have an extraordinary calling. This light is in us. This truth has been revealed to us. This grace comes to us and through us to other people. And that's what makes us extraordinary. Now, so stay with me now on this application. It's so easy to just think about that in a theoretical way. In the light of the way John has replied to this delegation, he could have, if he wanted to have an ego trip, draw all the tension to himself, which lots of people do. But he doesn't do that. Let me put it to you like this, and hopefully it makes sense. Knowing what we are not to do, knowing what we are not to do, can be liberating as we discover what we can do. Now, maybe that's a lot to take on. It's there in front of you. Just think about that. No, no, no one believer can do everything. So, here is John. He says, you know, I'm a voice. Well, okay, are you? A lone voice, maybe. You don't need to be a voice. Crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Something great, something good out of this arid surrounding is going to bring blessing in abundance. Knowing what we are not to do can liberate us from discovering what we can do. It, it is quite frustrating sometimes in church life where there are so many square pegs and round holes. Because a culture of grace helps us to get on with each other most of the time. You remember that famous uh, French-German philosopher Hopnow, who, who described politics at the turn of the century as a colony of porcupines, or hedgehogs we call them. And he had this caricature of society. And he said, here is society. And here are people who are individuals. Think, perhaps you think particularly of the French, but it could be the British. Um, and um, there they are. But they began to feel cold. So they huddled together to keep warm. And you know what happened? When they huddled together, because they were porcupines, some pricked each other and they separated again. They took the half and they went into their little corner. And then in the course of time, they began to feel the draft and bit cold, so they came together again. And after the course of time, and of course what he does is to highlight some of the things in which they pricked each other with. Background, politics, money, religion. Now I think the church is a bit like that. I leave the analogy with you. The point is here, it is very liberating for us to know that is not my role. That is not my task. That is not my primary gift. But this is, and by God's grace, I want to use it. That's what John does. And it's so simple and it's so obvious. And he does it well. And we can, if we're willing to trust in the Lord.
Do you see those whole series of, of negatives then as you have it in, in verse 8, 20, 21 and 23? And for the sake of time, I won't, won't go over them. But he says, not that. No, not this. Not him. Not that way. Do you see that? that? That happens at least four times. Now let me come to the application then. If, and I suggest to you that I certainly believe that this is so, if mediocrity, second rate, if mediocrity is the blight of our discipleship, then humility is surely a blessing of our discipleship. The trouble with humility is, if we have it, we don't know. If we do know, we haven't got it. It's a funny thing, that. You can't be conscious of your humility. You end up like Uriah Heep, I'm only humble, being proud of it. You can't do that. Does that make sense? So often, and this is a difficult thing, often we're at our best when actually we're not aware of it. We're living out the love of Jesus where he's placed us. And it is quite simple, and it is rather obvious, but there isn't a lot of it about if mediocrity is the blight of our discipleship, true humility is a blessing of it. Why do I say that? Well, come to turn over one page to John chapter 3 and verse 30. And here we have it in eight words, summing up. And with this, we close. Eight words. Sometimes some people say to you, what is your raison d'etre? What is your mission statement? What is your purpose? What... So somebody asked me in whole day, what floats your boat? I haven't heard that one before. What, what, what is the thing? What is it? What's the essence of you? What makes you tick? Or are you brain dead as well as just being there? What is it? Find it. Discover it. And trust God in it, even if you make mistakes. Better to make mistakes in the pursuit of following him than mediocrity which amounts to very little at all. So, where do we come with these eight words? Well, they're very powerful words. And there you have it in John chapter 3 and verse 30. There it is. He must become greater. I must become lesser. Uh, I don't think that's a good translation myself. Uh, I think King James Version puts it, he must increase, I must decrease. Others say, he is everything and I am nothing. Eight words to summarize his conviction, his credo, his purpose, the essence of his life. How would you sum up? If, if you could reduce it to eight words or ten or a, a, a one sentence... What is it? Or does mediocrity eclipse that where just take it or leave it? John is going to pay very dearly for this with his life. That chances are not going to happen to us. Many parts of the world now it is. He is everything. And I am nothing. Now, of course, some people distort the scriptures and someone has said, well, this is um, a lack of his deity. So, uh, we must bolster him up. 
But what is he saying here? It's not a diminution of his deity. He must become greater. In my life, in, in, in my relationships, in my values, in my secret life, in my priorities, he is greater. He actually is everything. He's the pivotal part of my life. He's not a bit extra on Sunday when I think I should go to church, make an appearance, or I should read my Bible. What is that about? He is worthy of the best always, always. He must become greater. It's not an increase of his deity, but an increase of his glory and his grace and his wonder. And the more we love him, the more we're able to love other people. The more I am occupied with Jesus, the less I am occupied with myself. I must become less. And he must become greater. Not because I ought to do it, but because I truly love him. And I want to serve him. And I want to make my life count for him. That's how John sees Jesus. And you can see him almost recoiling from even saying, I baptize with water. He will baptize with the Spirit and with fire and power. I'm not worthy to undo his shoes. He's everything. He's everything. And I love him and I want to serve him. And I want other people to know about him. And I repent of my half-hearted discipleship, second-rate belief. And I want to be delivered from distractions. For life is short and God is good and his grace is abundant. We're going to sing our final hymn and you'll see that they've chosen this as it comes to us from uh, Charles Wesley in this lovely hymn. And you see that he tries to sum it up uh, in the penultimate verse. His only righteousness I show, his saving grace proclaim. This is my work on earth below, to cry, behold, behold the Lamb. Happy if with my final breath I may but gasp his name, preach him to all, and cry in death, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in my life I prepare the way. I lay a bridge of kindness, of prayer, of credibility, and people will cross over that and have a living encounter with Jesus Christ. What a great calling that is.